And, and I just was thinking about that so much, about those moments of terrible indecision, those grieving moments of terrible indecision that we all have to face in our lives and the great uncertainty of it. And the fact that we live not only on a planet that is constantly in upheaval, we live in a mind that is constantly in upheaval. And we live in a culture that encourages indecision um, because we're surrounded by so many tens of thousands of choices. That's Elizabeth Gilbert. And this is The Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Wednesday. I am grateful for you tuning in with me today. And we have an amazing talk by one of my favorite speakers that I wish that I can just find more clips of her. But in finding the clips that I do find, it makes it all the more fun. So anyway. In today's talk, Elizabeth talks about the world of choices. And I think this clip will resonate with many people who who struggle with making choices and are easily overwhelmed by something called decision fatigue. And I was just talking to someone about this the other day, and we agreed that it's great to live in the world that we live in nowadays because there is a plethora of options and choices that we have at our disposal. But in having so many choices, it also can make making a choice so much more difficult and stressful. And it can oftentimes feel overwhelming. And I know that it's something that I struggle with at times because of this paradox of choice. So. If you're anything like me and you feel overwhelmed at times with making decisions, then I think this clip will, I think it will impart some great wisdom of how to better cope during these times. So I hope you enjoy this one with Elizabeth Gilbert. Enjoy. Um, so, so I am the girl who wrote that book based on that movie, and this, it's been a great blessing to have been that person. Uh, it also has come with this curious, unexpected side effects and consequences. And one of the ones that I find most fascinating is that because of the great success of Eat, Pray, Love, and because it was a book about a journey of self-discovery, because it had a happy ending, I am often mistaken for somebody who has gotten her life together. Um, and, and, and I understand why people want that desperately to be true for the same reason that I keep hoping to find somebody who has gotten her life together, because it, it gives you hope that maybe you will someday get your life together, as though life is some sort of a Sudoku puzzle and there are people who figure out how to solve it. And then once they solve it, everything is kind of gravy after that, right? I think we all sort of 
dream that someday that, that will be us. And the other really weird thing that happens um, in my life now is that people actually think I can help them get their lives together, which is an even more grievous misunderstanding. Um, and, and it has odd consequences. Like I was at a reading um, not very long ago and there was a, a line of people waiting to get their books signed. And this woman approached me to get her book signed and she was... I don't even know how to describe it. She was wearing a face of total insanity. Like, almost as if she had put it on that morning. You know, like, I'm going to wear my blue dress and my pearls and my craziest face, you know? And that's how I'm going to go out in the world. That's what she had brought with her into the world that day. And she kind of, like, almost impaled me with herself as she leaned in to the table. And she said, um, kind of white-knuckling the, the table, she said, I, I know I only have, like, a little tiny bit of time with you, and I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. But I just have to ask you one really, really quick question. And I said, sure, go ahead, ask. And she said, should I divorce my husband? (laughs) True, truly, you know? And there was a part of me that wondered what would happen if I just said, yes. (laughs) You should, you know? Or, no, you mustn't, you know? Like, just to take this, like, voice of total authority in this situation. Um, And and instead, of course, I was like, what am I going to give to this person in this tiny little weird frame of a moment that we're sharing, you know? And I just, following some weird impulse, I sort of just grabbed her hands and I said, if you think about this for even 10 seconds, I know that you will realize why I can't answer that question. And you could see her shut shut her eyes and she gave it a 10 second think. And then she opened her eyes and all this realization dawned and she said, oh, right, because you don't know any of the people in that story. And I said, right, I don't know any of the people in that story. And even if I did, I couldn't answer this for you. Even if I was your closest confidant, even if I was your sister, I couldn't answer this for you. And then something happened, and I still sort of get chills remembering it. All the crazitude just drained away from her. And I was left looking at her actual face that had been hidden underneath that. And it was the face of somebody who had obviously not slept in about six months, who was exhausted and lost and depleted, and who was so desperate that day to find somebody to whom she could hand over the entirety of her power and just have them give her an answer. She was clearly right in the center of a dilemma in the Greek ancient definition of the word dilemma, meaning a circumstance where you have two choices and both of them are equally horrible. Um, And she clearly had not been able to find her way through this. And I was so sympathetic because I've seen that face. Um, I had that face. I've seen that face on myself at three o'clock in the morning. And I know how much you want to long for somebody to answer it for you, to sort of put you on your path that you have lost your way from. And of course, I couldn't do that for her that day. And I just sort of took her hands and I said, I've been where you are, I'm on the other side, you'll find your way through. And that was sort of all I could give her and had to send her away with no clearer of an answer uh, than she had come with. And, And I just was thinking about that so much about those moments of terrible indecision, those grieving moments of terrible indecision that we all have to face in our lives and the great uncertainty of it. And the fact that we live not only on a planet that is constantly in upheaval, we live in a mind that is constantly in upheaval. And we live in a culture that encourages indecision um, because we're surrounded by so many tens of thousands of choices every single day. You know, how are you going to figure out 
your marriage or your life or your career when you can't even go to the grocery store without being like paralyzed looking at the deodorant section and wondering, I don't know which one of these 158 deodorants is going to bring me personal contentment and happiness. You know, like you don't know. And, you know, and, and, and that decision sort of gets doubled and dozened again and again. And, and you can so easily sort of get lost in that. I think that women in particular at this moment in history are liable to fall into that miasma of uncertainty for reasons that are very specific to this moment of history. And that is mostly what I want to talk about here today, which is to remind all of you, as you're going out there in the world and trying to make stupendous changes and do fabulous things, which I know you want to do, to remind you to be very gentle with yourself in recognition that we are living as women in a very interesting moment of history. And namely what that is, is that we are all, all of us of this generation, and by this generation, I mean any woman born in the Western industrialized world in the last 80 or 90 years. In terms of human history, I call that one generation and something very recent. We are all the subjects of a vast and enormously historically unprecedented social science experiment. And that social science experiment is, what happens if you give women autonomy? What happens if you give them literacy? What happens if you give them education? What happens if you give them legal protections, political rights, access to their own money, chances, power, opportunity, all these things that women have never, ever had? Suddenly, we have. Immediately, almost overnight, like chimpanzees raised in cages, released into the wild, you know, like, all of a sudden, we're all out there in the jungle trying to solve it, and it's tricky. And one of the reasons it's tricky, and I would say trickier, for us than for men is that we don't have, unlike men, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of role models of autonomous, powerful, independent, literate women who had that sort of control over their own destinies. We don't have those kind of examples. Not only do we not have them mythologically and classically and throughout history, we often don't have them in our own families. I can't look to my grandmother's life or even to my mother's life for very many clues on how to live mine because my life is so radically different from theirs that it's almost as if I come from a different species. My grandmother, who is still alive, she's an amazing woman. Her name is Maud Olson. She's 97. She lives in Brainerd, Minnesota. She was a Dust Bowl Depression-era farm wife whose life was nothing but rigor and difficulty for the entirety of her existence. And she had seven children, probably a great deal more pregnancies than that. She was poor, she was struggling, and every single day the only challenge on her plate was sort of how to get through that day. Her life looked exactly like the lives of every woman who had come before her from that moment to the beginning of time, and it looked exactly like the lives of every single woman she saw around her. And she and I talk about this all the time, and we talk about this odd fact that in every possible, measurable, conceivable way, her life was so much harder than mine, with one notable exception. She wasn't neurotic. She didn't wake up at three o'clock in the morning and wonder if she should have moved to Boston and go to art school. She didn't wonder if she should have gotten a master's degree. She didn't wonder if she should have had a kid, if she should have stayed married. If she, she, there was no point in her wondering any of these things because she lived in this very narrow rigidity of walls of choicelessness. And so with all the difficulty that she had, the one thing she didn't have to suffer through was wondering if she was making the right decision. And that is what my life is every day. 
a huge maze. She lived in this narrow walls. I live in this vast kind of topiary maze of choice after choice after choice. And we all do, as in keeping with the idea of a social science experiment, right? We're all in our maze and every woman is in her own one. My life doesn't look like my neighbor's life or my sister's life or my aunt's. We're all taking different paths in different ways. We're all experimenting with this freedom in different ways. And it can be enormously confusing, and sometimes you feel like you found a straightaway in the maze, and you're going down that straightaway, and then you run right into a brick wall, and you're like, whoa, you have to back up and take a right turn, and then there's a lever, and you think it's a pleasure reward, and you push it, and it was like an electric shock, and you didn't know that, and you have to back up and try again, and it's all this like maneuvering and, and second-guessing, almost as though we have doors in front of us all the time in the modern life as women, and, and like each day you've got like door one, two, and three, and you have to choose which one you go through, and there's that terrible heart-sickening fear that by going through door number two, you are murdering some essential part of yourself that could only be actualized by going through doors number one or three, you know, and, and maybe you're going to regret it, and you're going to end up like my friend Annie, whose husband says that she's going to someday write an autobiography called I Should Have Had the Scampy, the Anne Ryan story, A Lifetime of Second Guessing, right? <laughs> This is the big danger that we all live in, and it's a very real one, and how do you navigate that, you know? And sometimes you look over your topiary into some other woman's maze. This is why we live in the age of memoir, right? We want to see how other women are doing it. And sometimes that's edifying and helpful, but other times it just makes you more confused because just when you thought you had it figured out, you see someone who did it completely differently and you have to throw it all into doubt again and wonder if you should have taken that route. Um, and, and it can lead to Liebenschneid, this terrible German word that means life envy, the sense that somebody else figured it out. And if you just had her life or her house or her job or her car or her kids, then you would be happy. But she's doing the same thing into peeking into somebody else's life. And we're all like in this miasma, right? How do you get out of it? The great Martha Beck, who writes for O Magazine, wrote one of the most memorable columns I've ever seen in my life about this subject. And she said that in her explorations of the modern world and in women's lives, she has discovered that there are only four types of women. And they go into these categories. One, women who chose career over family and who feel conflicted about it. Two, women who chose family over career and who feel conflicted about it. Three, women, God help them, who chose career and family and who feel really conflicted about it. And four, the mystics. So what are the mystics? The mystics could be in any one of those previous three categories. A mystic is a woman who has somehow figured out a way to drown out all the commotion and that sort of commuter mind of a million different inspirations and aspirations and other people's goals and what you think you're supposed to do and regrets and second guessing and drown it all out and has found a way to follow some deeply true inner voice that takes her very much in her own direction. Now, I would argue that any time of history that requires that you must become a mystic in order to have a contented life is a tricky time in which to live. In the past, you only needed like one mystic in each village and everyone else was able to march in lockstep, but we don't have the lockstep anymore, so we all have to do it. How do you do it? I, I, I mean, I know, I know how I do it because it matters to me to try to stay in concordance with my own journey. I get up every morning at 4.30 in the morning and I meditate for about 45 minutes. And then I follow that up with about an hour of yoga to try to like keep my body from being a distraction in my life. And then because cardio is important, I go running for a couple miles. And then throughout the day, I, I make a point to only eat things that are nourishing and healthy for me in very small amounts. And I spend the rest of my afternoon in my many charitable pursuits. Are you buying? You're not buying this. 
that way. I'll tell you what my daily schedule actually is because it's probably precisely exactly like every single one of yours. I, I get up every single day and I, I do my best with that day. I do my best with what I have there. Um, and, and sometimes I fall very short of, of my aspirations for myself, for, for what I wish I could be or accomplish. And I am sorry to say this, and I, and I suspect that um, it might sound familiar to some of you. I am sometimes very, very, very hard on myself um, when I fall short of those aspirations and, and who I thought that I was supposed to be that day or, or in this lifetime. And I can say things to myself that are so evil, I wouldn't say those things to a mugger, you know? Um, like, there are ways that I, can, <laughs> that I can talk to myself that are so nasty and demeaning, you almost wouldn't believe it, especially in, in what the Australian poet Les Murray calls um, the three o'clock in the morning show, you know, where you wake up in the middle of the night and start running through your failings and, and wishing that you'd die. I, mean, I know none of you have ever done that, so um, you're just gonna have to take my word for it, that it happens to people sometimes. And I feel like what I want to send you away with today, I know that you've been given ample inspiration um, and, and motivation to go out and do extraordinary things. And, and looking out on you, I am not fearful that you won't try to do extraordinary things. I am not fearful that you aren't extraordinary people, that you're not generous and ambitious and, and smart and all these things. I fear only one thing, and that is that you are perhaps not often extremely kind to yourself. And I think that this age in which we live requires that more than ever, and especially for women, it is the one prayer that I have to offer to you. If there is a secret to the Sudoku puzzle at this moment in history for people like us, and there have never been people like us before, then I think that secret has something to do with acting in a spirit of unconditional self-friendship. Your true life begins and everything becomes possible the day that you drop the knife that you have been holding to your own throat. And I would ask all of you, whatever shame and blame and fear that you and remorse and regret and that I should have had the scampy blues that you might be carrying with you or that might be holding you back, we have to let go of it. Um, it there is indeed no time for it. And, uh, and I do think that it's the only way to get through the maze and to find your way. So I just wanted to impart that on you. You are all beautiful. Be very, very gentle with yourselves today and from this day forward. And everything is going to be fine. Big thanks to Elizabeth Gilbert for stopping by. If you'd like to connect with her, you can go to her website, elizabethgilbert.com. Her Instagram is Elizabeth underscore Gilbert underscore writer and her latest book is entitled city of girls a novel and i got this clip from youtube it is entitled elizabeth gilbert at icann's 2011 women's leadership conference and if you'd like to check out the last time that we've had her featured on the show you can go back and check out episode number 66 all right that is a wrap for me i hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and I will see you back here tomorrow. So, until then, stay strong. Later. <laughs>